0: This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David Michalis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Bruce Suter, card number 155. Bruce Suter, pitcher for the Atlanta Braves. Before we get to Bruce Souter, we do have some follow-up about last week's episode on Nick Ossaski. When we talked about Nick Ossaski, we talked about his struggle with vertigo that
1: prematurely ended his career after a 30-home run season with the Red Sox, similar to this week's card, signed a big contract with Atlanta that didn't quite pan out for the Braves. In Nick Ossaski's case, it was because he suffered from vertigo and was forced into a premature retirement. And a lot of commenters on Facebook were really sympathetic to Nick's plight with vertigo, some expressing their own struggles with vertigo and saying, you know, they didn't really expect that it would be as bad as it was, but that it really knocked them out and and was a debilitating issue for a lot of listeners. Good to hear that people were expressing sympathy for Nick, but also sad to hear so many folks having some struggles with, with vertigo. It sounds like a really a terrible situation to deal with. There was less sympathy for a certain former player manager of the Cincinnati Reds. <laughs> a couple of commenters pointed out something that we alluded to in the episode, but we didn't really explicitly state. And that was that Pete Rose thought, you know, Nick Assaski, pretty good hitter. He might be better used in the outfield than at first base. And there was a reason why Pete Rose might think that. And that's because Pete Rose was playing first base at the time And so he (laughs) just wrote himself into the lineup and moved Nikosasky into the outfield. Maybe not necessarily in the best interest of the team to have a 44-year-old first baseman who's hitting .264, not really playing in his prime anymore and moving Nikosasky into the outfield. And especially for that 1985 Reds team that finished in second place in the NL West, a commenter on Facebook pointed out. That race was close enough that maybe having Nick playing full time at first base and giving him the consistent playing time might have been enough to push the Reds over the top in that 1985 NL West race. They finished five and a half games behind the Dodgers, so not
0: incredibly close, but maybe it would have helped. Close enough to re-litigate 37 years later, David. If people want to get really worked up about Nick
1: spot at first base for the 1985 (laughs) Cincinnati Reds, I think that the 1988 Tops Facebook page is the perfect place for that.
0: It certainly is. And if you want to join the fun, you can find us at facebook.com slash 1988 Tops podcast. But now let's go to this week's episode and Bruce Suter. Why are we talking about Bruce this week?
1: Bruce Souter passed away earlier in 2022, in October of this past year. And a couple years back around Christmas, we talked about another Hall of Fame closer with our episode, Dennis Eckersley. And I thought it was about time for another Hall of Famer. Bruce had a strange and unexpected route to the majors, but he became a dominant closer in the 70s, putting up a couple of the all time best seasons for a closer. There's a Sabre bio by Norm King. So thank you, Norm. Bruce also had an iconic look and a Bobby Bonilla-esque contract that that actually ended up outlasting him.
0: I love talking about super annuities, and so we will get to that shortly. But first, let's go to the front of card 155. And this is a strange-looking one, David. I think a very cool-looking card. You've got Bruce Suter in profile he's looking on this is not an action shot in any way unless the action is bruce contemplating the nature of the universe the lighting is very strange the seats in the background are odd colors they've got kind of an iridescent blue to them with red posts and bruce's face just looks he's glowing he's just glowing with his glorious beard
1: you mentioned that this is not an action shot, and that is because for Bruce Sutter in 1987, there was no action. He didn't play in 1987. That might explain why he's wearing a mesh-backed baseball cap here. They didn't even want to spring for a real uniform. Bruce <laughs> was rehabbing all year in 1987 after a surgery, and 1988 would be his final year in Major League Baseball. The seats behind him do look like folding chairs, maybe at like a a wedding it's very strange it doesn't really look like stadium seating because of the weird coloration and lighting it almost looks like he's standing in front of a 1950s projection screen and they're projecting the a stadium behind him very strange picture you do get to see his glorious beard bruce Souter, at least in his time with the cardinals and with atlanta had this great beard that I always thought made him kind of look like a garden gnome. (laughs) And I thought he he kind of looks like the gnome from La Chouffe, the Belgian beer. I don't know if you know of this little gnome. I've included a picture. But that beard got much more majestic in old age and, and turned into this giant white bushy beard. But recently I found that in 2017, The Cardinals had a stadium giveaway of a Bruce Suter garden gnome, which you can find on (laughs) eBay for
0: $13. That is incredible. You know, rather than a painted cap, this card almost looks like it's a painted stadium. Recently, I had one of these artificial intelligence apps make my likeness in 50 different ways. and I feel like this is potentially an AI-generated card of Bruce Suter of the stadium, where they just said... Hey, computer, draw me a spring training scene on Mars, and here you go.
1: Put me in a stadium. Make me a real big leaguer.
0: It works. Now let's go to the back of 155, and we have Bruce Suter, 6'2", 195, right-handed thrower and batter, signed by the Cubs in 1971 as a free agent, born January 8, 1953 in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, with a home in Kennesaw, Georgia. Lancaster, Pennsylvania is
1: in Pennsylvania Dutch country. Pennsylvania Dutch are descendants from German immigrants from the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. The term Dutch is derivative of the Deutsch or Deutsch from the original German. Suter was the fifth of six kids born to Howard and Thelma Suter. Howard managed a Farm Bureau warehouse. And Bruce grew up in Mount Joy, a town not named for a mountain, but rather for a ship the Mountjoy, which broke the siege of Derry in Northern Ireland during the Williamite War. Mountjoy is often named in lists of delightfully named towns in Pennsylvania, Dutch country, along with Intercourse, Blue Ball, Litzitz, Bearville, Bird in Hand, and Paradise. And Mountjoy is also the name of a folk rock band. In 1950, there were around 3,000 people in Mountjoy, now over 8,000 people in Mountjoy, Pennsylvania. In that town, Bruce went to Donegal High School, where he played basketball, football, and baseball. Other Donegal alums include Chris Heisey, who played for the Reds, Dodgers, and Nats from 2010 to 2017, and Mike Sarbaugh, who played in the minors for six years and is currently Cleveland's third base coach. Bruce was a star at Donegal High, where there was another good pitcher named Tom Housel, and Suter and Housel were both inducted into the High School Hall of Fame three times. Once as individuals and once as members of the 1970 baseball team, and once as members of the 68-69 basketball team. So both those players are in the high school Hall of Fame three times. And those two were good friends. They really helped push each other to be better pitchers and better players. Hustle went on to be a good college baseball player at York College. And as a junior, Bruce hit 321, which was the best on his high school team. And on the mound, he won nine games, had a no-hitter, a one-hitter, and struck out 105 batters in 84 innings while walking just 18. That team won the county championship when Bruce was a senior. He went 6-2 when was a local all-star. As a senior, a senator scout came out to watch his teammate, Houseel, and because of a rainout, the start was switched. So Suter ends up pitching in this replayed game. The senator scout is impressed. He sees Suter blowing batters away, throwing in the high eighties, throwing effective breaking pitches. And so the senators drafted Bruce in the 21st round, but we don't see that at the top of the card. The problem here was that Bruce was born in January of 1953. So when he graduated in June of 1970 and was drafted, he was only 17 years old. The senators thought he was 18 and they weren't allowed to sign him until he was 18 years old. They couldn't contact him. So they had to wait until January. And Bruce decided to go to Old Dominion University and play baseball. The only problem there is that uh, Bruce, quote, couldn't get into the studying part of university.
0: (laughs) I can relate, David. I can understand that. Your first semester of freshman year. So Sooner drops out after a semester and goes back home and plays for a semi-pro team called Hippies Raiders, And while with the Raiders, a Cubs scout named Ralph DeLullo watched him play. DeLullo was born in Italy in 1911. His father was in the Italian Army and was killed in World War I. And after that, Ralph came to New Jersey when he was six years old. He was a minor league catcher and then became a scout, first for the Pirates in 1946, and was a minor league manager for the Tigers and joined the Cubs scouting department in the 1950s. He was best known for signing Suter, as we'll talk about in a second, as well as Joe Negro, each of them earning a huge $500 signing bonus. Ralph passed away in 1999 at the age of 88. When he passed away, his friends told the LA Times his lifelong dream was to discover a Hall of Famer. He came close once, but the Cubs wouldn't spend the money on a young Sandy Koufax. In that LA Times article, it didn't really even mention Bruce Suter who in 1999, when the article came out, was in his sixth year on the Hall of Fame ballot and had received only 24% of the vote.
1: At the time, Ralph's good friend, Jerry Eisenberg, said Ralph DeLulo was everything good, pure, and traditional that this game is really all about. His love of the game he first embraced as an immigrant kid when he could not express the terminology in English, but sure as hell swung the bat in American, was classic. And so Ralph DeLulo never got to see his dream of discovering a hall of famer become a reality because he passed away before Bruce was inducted, but he certainly had an eye for talent. He knew players when he saw him, he signed Joe Necro and Bruce Suter and was able to really get a good value. And particularly with Bruce, he saw a college dropout semi pro pitcher and
0: got him to sign for 500 bucks. What a deal. Bruce starts out at rookie league two games into his career. He got a pinched nerve in his elbow and he went back to Lancaster and got a job in a factory printing cigar boxes. I guess he was afraid to tell the Cubs the severity of his injury, and so he paid for his own elbow surgery. So he's working in a factory to pay off the doctor bill and was worried that the Cubs would release him if they knew the extent of his injury. He showed up in spring 1973 in spring training in Quincy, Illinois and he can't throw a fastball anymore. According to a Cubs minor league executive, Pat Nugent, Bruce was about 30 minutes away from getting released. He gets called into
1: the office. Management's about to tell him, you're out of here. And according to Nugent, during the meeting, Suter pulls up his sleeve and shows the scar on his arm. The Cubs management knew that Suter had done this whole thing on his own in an attempt to save his career. And so... They saw that determination and they decided to give him another chance. And so now you have a guy with a dead arm. He can't throw a fastball, which what we know about Bruce Suter from his career is that he didn't really have a fastball. It was all about a split finger pitch. But as a youngster, that was his pitch, a a good fastball. And that year he ends up having to relearn how to pitch. At Quincy, he went three and three with five saves and 40 games all out of the bullpen. His ERA was 4.13. Doesn't look like a Hall of Fame career, not numbers that scream future Cy Young winner, but he's learning to get out without a fastball and learning from Fred Martin, his pitching coach, a new pitch that would define his career.
0: Yeah, Fred Martin had spent 17 years in the minors and a few years with the Cardinals. He had used a split finger fastball to change speeds. This really was a pitch that wasn't used by many pitchers in the 1970s. The pitch, if thrown correctly, looks like a fastball until it drops at the last second. And Bruce Souter really learned how to use it.
1: His manager at Quincy said, when Bruce Souter is ready for the big leagues, that's the day the communists take over.
0: Bruce had that ERA over four,
1: but he's still learning. By 1974, the splitter was working. Bruce said, I'd like to tell you I worked and worked but I'd be lying to you because it did come to me right away. The first day I threw it, I'd get it to break. Not every time, but you could see the signs of it, that it was going to be something special. I never adjusted my grip after the first day. Between A and AA in 1974, Suter was dominant. He pitched 65 innings in 26 games, had a whip just over one, and a 1.38 ERA. 1975, he spends all of that year at AA, pitching in 41 games, finishing with a 2.15 ERA in 67 innings. And we have
0: a fun fact. That's right. We have the fun fact that he is tied for the Texas League lead with 13 saves in 1975. In 1976, Bruce probably should have started with the big league club, but I guess America just wasn't ready for the commies just yet. He started at Wichita for the arrows and only pitched in seven games had a 1.5 era and gets called up to the cubs on may 9th the cubs are 11 and 16 at the time and here's big league bruce he joins both russell brothers rick monday peev lecox steve stone and a couple other guys who were in this set mike cruco manny trio and bill madlock
1: but this team wasn't very good they needed relief pitching help and Bruce provides that assistance. In 52 games, he pitches 83 innings, only allows 27 runs. It took a little while for the Cubs to realize that Bruce's best spot was as the closer. Eight players that year got saves, and Bruce only got 10. He had a 6-3 and three record with a 142 ERA+, plus, so he comes in and it is already pretty dominant. But the Cubs team was 75-87. and 87.
0: In spring training 1977, Bruce got some high praise. One of those teammates that he had been competing with for save opportunities was Daryl Knowles, and Knowles was now on the Rangers. He told a reporter the, the next relief pitcher to win the Cy Young Award will be this guy from Chicago. The first reliever to ever win a Cy Young was Mike Marshall in 1974. He pitched in 106 games, which is, is ridiculous and probably should be illegal.
1: Yeah, I need to look up how much Mike Marshall got paid, but I'm sure it was not
0: enough. So was Knowles right that Souter would be the next in line? Souter had his best season in 1977, but he finished only sixth in the Cy Young voting. Another relief pitcher won the Cy Young that year in the American League, Sparky Lyle.
1: So Daryl missed it by a little bit, but Bruce would win the Cy Young. He would end up becoming the third relief pitcher. Daryl just missed it by a couple years. In 1977 this Cubs team was in contention well into the summer. They were really dependent on Rick Russell, who probably should have won the Cy Young. We'll encourage listeners to go back to the Rick Russell episode. Rick Big Daddy Russell was valued at 9.5 wins above replacement in 1977 going 20 and 10. But the bullpen for this Cubs team had a young Willie Hernandez who would also be a reliever who won the Cy Young in 1984 and MVP. But Bruce had a great season. Through August 1st, he was 5-1 with 24 saves and a 1.06 ERA. He was the National League Pitcher of the Month for May. He was named to the All-Star team, but he ended up not pitching due to a shoulder injury. On August 2nd, the Cubs are 62-42, two and a half games up on the Phillies. And unfortunately for the Cubs and for Bruce, he ended up going on the 21-day disabled list with a, with a shoulder strain. He comes back August 23rd. The Cubs are eight and a half games back in third place. Bruce wasn't quite as dominant. He gave up some runs, blew a couple saves, but he ended the season you know, with a sky-high 1.34 ERA.
0: <laughs> he gave up 21 runs in 107 innings and saved 31 games with a whip of .857 On the year, his ERA plus was 328, so he was three times better than the average pitcher. This is the second best among pitchers with 100 innings or more ever. The only season better was Slim Jones in the Negro Leagues in 1934 for the Philadelphia Stars. Slim Jones passed away, sadly, at the age of 25. And In a 1976 interview, Satchel Paige named Slim Jones as one of the three best pitchers he had ever seen, along with Bob Feller and Dizzy Dean.
1: I added that note in there because a lot of times I think it is just easier to limit our stat searches to AL and NL, but I think that it actually tells us a more complete story by talking about a guy named Slim Jones who had this ridiculous season, and it was really the only outstanding season he had due to injuries and alcoholism that ended up sadly ending his life very, very young. I know that sometimes it makes it a little bit more confusing when we adding in the Negro league stats, but in this case, it, it kind of helps to tell the story of baseball and helps to tell a a little bit about how great Bruce Suter was this year. He's valued at 6.5 wins above replacement, outstanding for a reliever. That's the fourth best season for a pitcher with zero starts after Goose Gossage, John Hiller, and Mark Icorn.
0: So he did not win the Cy Young that year either. But this was a remarkable season for a guy who just four years prior was paying for his own surgery. 1978, the Cubs are in contention again, holding first place into late June. So Bruce was again named to the All-Star team, but this time was able to pitch. And we have a clip from that All-Star game. We've got Keith Jackson, Howard Cosell, and Don Drysdale on the call. Right now, we go to the eighth inning of play and Keith, take it away. Jack Clark is in right field on the San Francisco Giants a fine young player who's meant so much to them this year but we're looking right now at Bruce Sutter as he's pitching to George Brett and he has him at one and two with that funny split fingered pitch that he fancies and does so
1: well with Well, they get a pitch from him above the knees it's a victory
0: Brett beats it on the ground foul. You get some great camera shots here from our guys on that center field camera to watch that ball go down. That suitors throwing. The pitch just before the last one here that Brett fouled off. That thing really, the bottom fell out
1: of that thing. It was unbelievable. Bruce didn't have his trademark beard at this point. He did have his split finger pitch working very well. He faces George Brett, Jim Rice, and Dwight Evans. He ends up fooling Brett with a splitter, getting him to ground out. He then struck out Jim Rice, and Dwight Evans. He even fooled Bob Boone, his own catcher, on the Rice strikeout. He ends up getting two outs in the ninth and earns a win in that All-Star game. But after the All-Star break, Bruce fell into a slump. From August 7th through the end of the season, he had a 6.83 ERA in 18 appearances He denied that he was overworked, but the Cubs did bring in his old coach, Fred Martin, to help him out. And Martin said, there's nothing wrong with him physically that a little rest wouldn't cure. We just need a few complete games from our starters. Again, showing the difference between 1978 (laughs) and now. The Cubs also fell off. They were three and a half games out at the beginning of that run and fell to 11 games
0: out in third place. Going into 1979, there were questions about Bruce's durability after that slump. And so he answered them by opening the season with 10 scoreless innings, made another all-star game, earned another all-star win, pitching two scoreless innings and striking out three, including striking out Jim Rice again. On September 18th, he earned his 37th save, which tied the major league record. And at that point, there were 13 games left in the season. He had a 1.99 ERA. And the Cubs were in fifth place, 14 and a half games out.
1: So there were a few chances for Bruce to set the record and hold it himself. Unfortunately, he blew saves in his next three games, giving up four of his season total 25 runs in those last three games. But he still ended up with a pretty outstanding line, 37 saves, 2.22 ERA, a 188 ERA plus, and a a whip under 1.977. And that was the 20th best Uh, wins above replacement season for a pitcher with zero starts, 4.9 wins above replacement. And going back to that Noel statement, while he wasn't right about Bruce being the next, he was right that he would win a Cy Young. Bruce received 10 first place votes. He edged out Joe Necro for the 1979 Cy Young and became the third relief pitcher to win the award. I looked into how this happened because it was a really good season for Bruce. But if you look at the line, it's not a 50 save season. It's 37 saves. Yeah, that was a record. And it was a really good season. But this also falls into that Steve Bedrosian category where you have voters who don't see a single totally dominant pitcher. So they split votes among a bunch of other pitchers. And in that year, it looks like Joe Necro and J.R. Richard split votes that would have put either of them over the top. Bruce himself said, I was shocked. I really thought Joe Necro would get it. I think we talked about this in the Dennis Eckersley episode, whether or not a relief pitcher should be the Cy Young Award winner. And I think we talked about it in the Steve Bitterosian episode. In this case, I think it was okay. Bruce threw a lot of innings and he was really dominant. And the starters that year, you know, you have a couple 20 game winners, but nobody who's incredibly dominant. In fact, Phil Necro had the highest wins above replacement, 7.4, but he went 21 and 20. I don't think a lot of writers were going to give a 20-loss pitcher the Cy Young Award, even if he threw 342 innings like Phil Necro did. So Bruce had a great season. He was fourth in pitching war, which was really great for a reliever, behind only Necro, Rick Russell, who got no Cy Young votes, and J.R. Richard. He tied the saves record. Twelve of his saves were, tw- were two innings or more. So it was a really good season.
0: And it came at a really good time for Bruce as well. Yeah, it came in an arbitration year for Bruce. It led to a record judgment for him. He won $700,000 in arbitration. The team had offered $350,000 for his next contract. Bruce wanted a long-term contract and threatened to not show up for camp. But in the end, he did show up. And what he found was a media environment that was very unhappy with that. And the more things change, the more they stay the same, David. Sports writers who were incensed at this overpriced athlete, even in an era of $1.30 gasoline, $1.98 for a gallon of milk, and $36 for a gallon of Jack Daniels, paying a baseball pitcher $2,310.23 per out seems a little steep, wrote Richard Kuchner of the Baltimore News American. What incredible economic... <laughs> analysis there
1: I don't know what the going rate for a gallon of Jack Daniels is
0: if you're buying by the gallon you call him John (laughs) Bill Lyon from the Philadelphia Inquirer also saying quote no athlete is worth that kind of money in any sport our values have become totally warped this this is crazy I mean it's 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 always happened it always will happen for some reason sports writers and I and I know because I was one always putting themselves in the place where they can imagine themselves being the player and thinking, gosh, how could they make all that money? All they do is play baseball and never thinking about how much money the owners make because they can never conceive of what it would take to run a baseball team. But when you see that owners make millions and billions of dollars, while an athlete is the person who's actually in demand in a competitive market for their labor, it just goes to show you how the media and capitalism work hand in hand.
1: And I think in this case, with a relief pitcher, it's very difficult to figure out the true value of a guy who pitches one or two innings. And we'll talk about that when we get to the Hall of Fame and whether relief pitchers are over or underrepresented in the Hall of Fame. And that goes back to the sports writers as well. But in this case, the writers give him a Cy Young Award, and then some other writers say, you're overpaid. Uh, Unfortunately for Bruce, even though he got that big contract, the next year the Cubs lost ninety-eight games. Bruce had a decent year. He saved twenty-eight games, which accounted for saves in almost half of the Cubs victories. He got a save in the All-Star game. He had a 150 ERA plus in over a hundred innings. So a really good season for him on a very disappointing Cubs team.
0: Yeah, leading the league in saves yet again, you know, for the third year in a row there. And at the end of the 1980 season, the, the rival Cardinals come in with a trade offer. They sent rookie outfielder Leon Durham and third baseman Ken Zamboni-Wrights, who was coming off an all-star season, and a player to be named later to the Cubs for Bruce Souter. And this is quite an interesting trade. I mean, the, Car- the Cardinals both got a closer and took away the star from their rival team. Suter had more saves than the entire Cards' whole staff in 1980. And five of his 28 saves came against the Cardinals, so it's a really good way to improve your position in the division is take away your team's best reliever.
1: And the Cubs got a decent player in Leon Durham, and they thought Ken Wrights might be a replacement for Ron Santo, but uh, unfortunately he only played 82 games for the Cubs. Wrights passed away in 2021. Durham had a solid bat, helped the Cubs to that 1984 NLCS, but then had that key error in Game 5. Souter was really good in 1981, leading the National League again with 25 saves, finishing fifth in Cy Young balloting in the strike-shortened season, and the Cardinals got unlucky. They had the best overall record in the NL East, but finished second in both halves of the season. In fact, in the second half of the season, they finished a half game behind Montreal, but because they played one fewer game, they didn't have a chance to make up that game and potentially tie Montreal and make it to the playoffs. Something similar happened to the Reds in the first half of the season. So in both divisions, you have the team with the best overall record for the entire season not making the playoffs. Disappointing, but Bruce got another save in an All-Star game, this time in the bottom of the ninth, up one. The American League hadn't won an All-Star game since 1971, and the crowd is mad. Matt, can you imagine the crowd in an All-Star game getting so angry? They were so angry that the American League ran out of players. So Dave Steebe <laughs> is batting. And we have what? a video here. Steebe is, he's wearing a batting helmet, but it it's a Mariner's batting helmet. Dave Steebe famously <laughs> of the Toronto Blue Jays. And Souter strikes out Dave Steebe. He then makes Dave Winfield fall down with a split finger pitch before Winfield lines out to end the game. So another good end to an all-star game for Bruce Souter.
0: But back to the Cardinals, 1982 was a much better year for them. They were in a close pennant race all year, and Souter had again led the National League with 36 saves. That made four years in a row leading the league. He had a shaky first half with an ERA over six in June, and a pulled groin muscle that kept him from his sixth straight all-star appearance. But in the second half of the season, he was strong with a 1.43 ERA in 33 games, and a .87 ERA in August, with only two runs given up in 14 games. That helps the Cardinals win the National League East by three games over the Phillies. And 1982 was Bruce's first and only playoff baseball, and he made the most of it.
1: In the NLCS against Atlanta, Bruce came in down 3-2 to in Game 2. St. Louis comes back to tie the game and win it in the bottom of the ninth with Bruce on deck. He was next up to bat. And the Atlanta coach could have really tested Whitey Herzog here by walking Ken Oberkfell to get to Bruce Suter. Herzog would have had to take Suter out of the game for a pinch hitter. But instead, Oberkfell is able to end the game on a walk off. So Bruce ends up getting the win and doesn't have to go to the plate. He got a save in game three to secure the sweep and a trip to the Sud Series against Milwaukee. And this is a really strong Brewers offense. Harvey's wall bangers and a great World Series that went to seven games.
0: In the series, Bruce pitched four games. He had two scoreless innings in Game Two to get a win that evened the series one game to one. He came into Game Three up five nothing, gave up two runs, but still earned a save in a six-two win. And he came in down four-two in Game Five. The Brewers won that one six to four. In the seventh game at Busch Stadium, Joaquin Andahar pitched seven strong innings, and with the last out of the seventh, almost got in a fight with Gumby Jim Gantner. He did a shooting motion after getting the out, doing those finger guns. Gantner called him a hot dog or something maybe stronger than that. Souter came in in the eighth inning with a slim 4-3 lead. He faced two Hall of Famers and a five-time All-Star, getting Paul Molitor to ground out, struck out Robin Yount, and then got Cecil Cooper to ground out, the Cards added a couple insurance runs in the ninth. And in the ninth inning, he faced another Hall of Famer and Cardinals legend, Ted Simmons. He got him and Ben Ogilvy to ground out. And for the final out of the series, American home run champ Stormin Gorman Thomas, an epic battle of facial hair.
1: Gorman Thomas takes it to a full count, fouls off a couple pitches. With a 3-2 count for multiple, multiple pitches, the final pitch comes, and here's the call. From the belt to the plate, a swing and a miss, and that's
0: the winner, that's the winner, a World Series winner for the Cardinals, Porter throws his mask into the air, the players
1: converge around the mound, the police arrive on the scene, the canine patrol and the mounted patrol, some fans manage to get on the field, but they needn't do that and they won't be out there very long. The, Cardinals have won the game six to three. According to Jim Cott, the irony of that last pitch is that Suter struck out Gorman Thomas for the last out of the World Series on a high fastball that was 84 miles per hour. He had used up his splitters, getting Gorman Thomas to foul off a bunch of pitches, but Souter was able to, to get Gorman Thomas with a high fastball, ends the game, wins the World Series. Daryl Porter runs to the mound jumps into Suter's arms. Souter said after the game, Daryl and I just rolled around on the bottom of the pile together. I'll be okay. I've got four months to heal. There's madness as 30,000 of Nelly's closest friends come running onto the field. Madness in St. Louis. Really great scenes there at the end of that game. A huge World Series for Souter and for the city of St. Louis
0: in 1983 maybe he needed more than a few months to heal because Souter fell off he only had seven saves at the all-star break and didn't make the all-star team even though whitey herzog was picking the team he had an okay era the first half 2.93 but his second half went up to over five he had more save opportunities but let up more runs after an overall disappointing year bruce said he was throwing his splitter too hard And that if it went over 80 miles an hour, it didn't break as much. This was the first time in his career. He had an ERA plus under 100. It was an 86 rough year 1984. The Cardinals brought in Mike Rourke to be their pitching coach. He had been Souter's coach in Chicago. And this really helped the pitching staff, particularly Bruce in 71 appearances, he was dominant a 1.54 ERA. He tied Dan Quisenberry's league record 45 saves that year. With a 2.27 ERA+, which is outstanding, made the All-Star team for the sixth time, but didn't feature in the game. Overall for the season had a 4.5 war, the 34th best season for a reliever, close to his Cy Young season. And yet again, the timing of his great season was fortuitous. This is his free agent year, and he got a
1: big contract. $4.8 million over six years doesn't sound so big. That's not much more than his $700,000 a year that he was making. But while we talk about Bobby Bonilla day every year, Bruce or Bruce's agent should have their own day. This contract also had $4.8 million in deferred cash payments that would pay 13% interest over a 36-year period from the end of the contract. So the contract expires in 1990. Souter starts receiving an annual stipend of $1.3 million a year for 36 years. So the total value of that is almost $50 million. And at the time that was unheard of amounts of money. Now we're looking at 13 year, $300 million contracts, but Bruce was being paid up until he passed away. And I think that his family will still receive money beyond Bruce's death. So the contract ended up outliving Bruce Suter.
0: What a legacy, a super annuity of epic proportions. Never heard of a 36-year payout that's a longer payout than you might get from the lottery. I mean, that's
1: that's pretty
0: amazing. How did it go in Atlanta?
1: Not great. He started okay. He had nine saves in 1985 by the end of May. But then in June, it all went downhill. He had seven blown saves in June and July. And he was pitching through shoulder pain. He ended the season with an ERA of nearly 4.5, 85 ERA plus, and only 23 saves. He has surgery in the offseason for a pinched nerve. 1986, he returns, but he's just not the same pitcher. He only appeared in 16 games and loses the closer role. And he ends up on the DL on June 1st, and he stays there all the way through the 1987 season, which explains the weird hat on this card. He had an atrophied muscle in his rotator cuff, and he sat out the whole year to try to strengthen the muscles around that atrophied muscle. He comes back in 1988, only 14 saves short of 300. And he ends up blowing a save in his first appearance. He had some okay runs where he looked like the same pitcher of old, picks up some saves, lowers his ERA to under two by June, but then was really inconsistent after that.
0: In September of 1988, he got a couple save opportunities getting... Number 299 against the Dodgers. And on September 9th, he got a chance with a 5-4 lead in the 11th inning against the Padres. He got Tim Flannery and Dickie Thon out and finally struck out future Hall of Famer Roberto Alomar to get save number 300. He was only the third pitcher to ever reach that mark. Now there are 31 who have reached that mark. But Sooner said after the game, it feels good. When you've had three operations in two years, you don't think you're going to get your shot at it. I hope there's a lot more to come. Well, there weren't a lot more to come. That was Souter's last game of 1988, and he tried to come back in 1989. He said, I knew this year would be the year I came back as a regular pitcher, or I was going to blow my arm out, Souter said in the final days of spring training. And of course, the latter happened. In November, Atlanta officially released Bruce, ending his career. So closing the book on Bruce Souter: 300 saves in the major leagues, a record of 68 wins, 71 losses, and 661 games and a 2.83 ERA, a 136 ERA+, plus, which is 26th all-time among pitchers with at least 1,000 innings pitched. He has the one World Series ring, led the league in saves six times, was named to six All-Star teams, and pitched in the top five of the National League Cy Young voting four times, including his first-place finish in 1979. How about in retirement?
1: Bruce remained in the Atlanta area with his wife Jamie and their three sons, And he was briefly a part-time coach in the Cardinals organization, but mostly he focused on raising his family. He said, once I was done playing, I walked away. I wanted to be with my boys. He would still show up for events at Cardinals games, like throwing out first pitches. And there's a good video of Billy Bob Thornton talking about attempting to catch a split finger pitch from a 50-plus-year-old Bruce Souter. So anyway, I'm catching the ball, and he's just throwing it. And he's older now; he's throwing probably you know 70 miles an hour to me. You're warming up, Bruce. Suter. Warming up, Bruce Suter. He. Great. I s- asked him like an idiot. I said, "You got to throw me the splitter. I just got to see what it looks like." Mm-hmm. Hit me right where
0: it hurts. <laughs> so yeah. you're, you 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 put it there right
1: in front of the chest. Yeah. And then it's split right where it hurts. And then you yeah. split. Yeah. Yeah, I did. <laughs>
0: So it raises the question, David, is, is hitting Billy Bob Thornton in the nuts a strong enough argument for Bruce Souter to be in the Hall of Fame?
1: It took a while for Bruce to get voted in. He hovered between 20 and 30 percent for six years and then gradually inched his way up. In 2005, he was on two thirds of the ballots. And then in 2006, in his 13th year on the ballot, he was the only player to get over 75 percent on the writer's ballot. And he was just the fourth relief pitcher inducted. He joined that year 17 inductees from the Negro Leagues chosen by the Committee on African American Baseball. This also included Etha Manley, the owner of the Newark Eagles, the first woman inductee. So a really great year for inductions, although they missed out on some very worthy Negro Leagues candidates, I encourage folks to go listen to the Building the Ballot episode from a friend of the show Adam Dorowski where he talks about many other folks who are very qualified to be in the Hall of Fame. But at his induction, Bruce is on the stage and Ozzie Smith and Johnny Bench are there, and they wore giant gray beards to poke some fun at Bruce's classic bearded look. In his speech, Bruce did a really good job of respecting the other inductees, many of whom had long since passed away and their families were there to receive the honor on their behalf. It was kind of put on Bruce as one of the only living people there to add a little bit more to to the respect for the 17 other people who were being inducted. But Bruce's induction speech, he talks about his career not ending how or when he had hoped it would.
0: But Father Time has caught up with me. First he took my arm, then he took my hair, then he took the color from my beard. But he cannot take the great friendships and memories I have from being a baseball player.
1: It's just a very thoughtful and sweet speech about Bruce Souter,
0: a guy who loved baseball, loved his
1: teammates, loved his team, and loved the fans.
0: We've asked this question several times, David, through the series. You know, do closers belong in the Hall of Fame? Does he belong in the Hall of Fame? Would we still make the decisions now for pitchers of this era?
1: 300 saves meant so much more in the 70s and 80s. That was the number. Bruce was the third guy to get there, and he's been pushed way down the list because he just got to 300 and just barely. But the role of the closer changed. We talked about it with Dennis Eckersley from a multiple inning stopper closer role to the single inning shutdown man pitch every other day. And a stat that's really telling about Bruce's career in the role of the closer, Raleigh Fingers had 135 saves in which he pitched two innings or more. Souter had 130. Goose Gossage had 125. Trevor Hoffman, inducted in the Hall of Fame in 2018, had seven two-inning-plus saves in his entire career. Seven. It's a totally different role. I'm not offended by Bruce Souter's inclusion in the Hall of Fame. I think that there are folks who maybe don't think that he is deserving. But I also think that there has to be some kind of opportunity to put the best closers in the game in the Hall of Fame. It tells the story of the game and it tells the story of the changing role of the pitcher. And as we move away from nine inning starters, there are so many more relief pitchers and so many more pitchers in the game. They take up just a larger percentage of the players in the game. And they're often, with closers particularly, some of the best personalities in baseball. We've Loved Dennis Eckersley, Dan Quisenberry, and now Bruce Souter, another guy, just an iconic look and an iconic player. And according to Jay Jaffe's reliever Jaws rankings, which incorporate wins above replacement, win probability added, Suuter is the 23rd ranked reliever. He's right above Kent Tekulve, just below Dan Quisenberry and Tom Hankey, guys that maybe we would like to see in the Hall of Fame because we think they have interesting stories and are iconic closers from our set. But like I said, the role of the reliever has changed so much that it's really hard to quantify that value and what value they hold and what value they could hold when you're limited to one or two innings. Suter also had fame, and that's a part of the Hall of Fame discussion. He hit that magic 300 number when it meant something, and he was the guy, the closer in Major League Baseball. And All-Star Games don't mean that much, but he had wins and saves in four or five straight All-Star Games, and he was the guy on the biggest stage. He won a Cy Young Award, and he had that memorable look, the hair flowing under his cap. He excelled in those premier competitions, closed out a World Series, and he also just had that pitch. He's remembered for the split finger pitch. Johnny Bench, no greater authority on hitting, said, never, never saw a ball explode like his. I bunted. I couldn't hit what he was throwing, so I figured maybe I could bunt it. When Bruce signed with the Cardinals, someone suggested to Whitey Herzog that Souter was the best reliever in baseball. And Herzog corrected them and said, in history. Earlier this year, Bruce Souter passed away. He had recently been diagnosed with cancer, and he'd been suffering from Parkinson's disease. The cancer progressed quickly, and he passed away at only 69 years old. Bruce had said every player wants to be remembered, whether it's for a pitch or a play or a season. And Bruce Souter is remembered by Cardinals fans for that 1982 World Series ending pitch for his 1979 Cy Young Award. Bruce said that his dad taught him that the game is perfect but the people who play the game are not. And Bruce would tell himself that throughout his career, that if he failed one day, the next day he could be a success. And he saw that throughout those 13 years of waiting for the Hall of Fame. And I think while there are other players who might also be worthy, I liked to watch Bruce Souter be happy about that induction. And it's good to see people get inducted when they are still around to enjoy it
0: like we'd said, Bruce Suter shouldn't have had a major league career. He was a minor leaguer with a dead arm and reinvented himself. And just a great story. So thank you, David, for that. Thank you, Norm King, again, for the Sabre bio. And thank you to you at home. If you're buying Jack Daniels by the gallon, we'd love to know your source. You can let us know on Twitter. We're at tops 1988 Thanks a lot. And we'll see you next week.